Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles with you, won't you open with me to the book of James? And I'm going to read James 1, verse 12 to 18. James 1, from verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for your word of truth with which there is great power. There's power unto conversion and salvation and life. And we ask for that life today again. Amen. The pastor Kent Hughes tells the story of a woman early on in his ministry who came to him and his wife for counseling. She had come to Christ as a married woman, driven from a human perspective, from a, a place of desperate need, a real low point in her marriage. At that time, though, sadly, her, her troubled husband didn't follow her as she so dearly hoped he would. After a year of continuing marital disappointment and strife, she eventually sought uh, help from a counselor. And instead of help, she became the victim of a professional seduction began with extravagant sympathy, with compliments about her attractiveness under the guise of trying to build up her self-esteem. Then came subtly suggestive comments, and what followed from this was a series of sinful liaisons that did great damage to her life. Hughes says by the time he and his wife saw her, she was a ruined person seething with bitterness and rage. She was the victim of a wolf in sheep's clothing and also the victim of her own decisions. But Hugh says the amazing thing was it was neither with him or with herself that she placed ultimate blame. She said to him through clenched teeth, I asked God to lead me to the right person and he led me to this man. It is God's fault he is to blame for what has happened in my life. And this was the beginning for her of years of bitter estrangement from the, the one really, the only one who loved her perfectly. Later, she would repent. After about a decade, her husband as well came to faith in Christ, but it was not before the misery of many troubled years. This tendency to shift the blame, not just away from ourselves, but all the way back to God is deeply ingrained in our sinful natures. It's as old as the garden, isn't it? It's as old as mankind. In the garden, when Adam sinned, God asked him, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And what was Adam's reply? 
the woman whom you gave to be with me. We see the same framework, right? The woman you gave. See, on first reading of James's passage today, you might think to yourself, I've never accused God of tempting me to sin. But the ways that we do this can be quite subtle. We've reinvented Adam's excuse in millions of different ways in our own situations. It always boils down to a blame shifting where the, the final finger we're holding up is pointed back at God. So sometimes, for example, we blame uh, our sin on circumstances. If my husband was more understanding, if my children were more compliant, then I'd be less irritable day to day. If my boss wasn't so unreasonable and my work wasn't so stressful, then I wouldn't be angry all the time. If my teacher wasn't so mean or my mind wasn't so weak, then I wouldn't need to cheat on my test. My friends weren't so insistent and, and so leading me astray all the time, then I wouldn't have gotten drunk at that party. And what we're subtly saying in all of this is, God, you, if you had given me a better spouse or better children or a better boss or better teacher or better friends, if you'd made me different, I'd be able to obey you. Often our own disposition is a big one. Even when we know we have a problem, still we can blame God. If you hadn't made me like this, my dad was angry and now I'm angry. I'm just genetically doomed to fail. Why are my passions so strong? I can't help myself. This is how the Scottish poet Robert Burns put it. Thou knowest that thou hast formed me with passions wild and strong, and listening to their witching voice has often led me wrong. Even when we blame Satan, as you know the old line, the devil made me do it. Even in this way, this blame can be aimed at God, especially when you know that Satan is subject to God's command. Have you ever thought in this way before? God, why can't you just get him off my back? Don't you want me to succeed? And all of this, we're failing to see the truth behind our temptations and the truth that we need in order to face temptations. And James is gonna help us today. This passage is a primer, a theological foundation for facing temptations and resisting temptations. There are two sections here. In verses 13 to 15, we see the, the truth about the real reason we're tempted. The truth to own about us, to accept and own. And in verses 16 to 18, we see a truth that provides hope for the next time temptation comes knocking on our doors. If we are to be faithful in facing temptation, we need to know truth. We need to know ourselves. And more importantly, we need to know the goodness of God. So number one, point number one, in verses 13 to 15, the truth about us that calls for humility. The truth about us that calls for humility. Now, as we begin to, James begins to reveal and unpack this truth, we need to understand this in context. So where are we in the letter? James has been speaking thus far to, we know, a, a somewhat battered group of Christians scratching their heads over the way that life is turning out. They are facing various trials, and he wants to help them with joy. So you remember verse 2, he said to them, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And he gives them a reason. It's because God is working in those trials. He has a glorious purpose. The trials are there for the testing of faith, for the refining of your faith. 
God is wanting to produce in you a steadfastness that will bear much fruit in your life. And these trials are for the shaping of your life and your heart for his glory. The ultimate aim we saw in verse 12 to cap off that first section is this crown of life promised at the end of life to those who love him and who persevere. And so verse 12 is a hinge into our passage on temptations, a reminder here that we're talking about enduring trials because temptations are a kind of trial. In fact, you wouldn't see it in the English, but it's the same word in the Greek. It's only context that would dictate whether we use the English trial or the English temptation. And if you think about it, every trial can become a temptation to sin as well. Every circumstance you face requires a decision. Am I going to persevere and walk with God through it? Or am I going to listen to the voice calling for disloyalty? For example, financial difficulties can lead us to question the provision and the goodness of God. And we begin to make decisions and we commit sins of mistrust. Or suffering can lead us to question his love and his justice. And we start making decisions out of fear. And so we come to this passage and we acknowledge this is primary, that God is sovereign over our lives, that he ordains the testing of our faith. It's a truth that we see throughout scripture. In Genesis 22, God tested Abraham. He asked him to sacrifice his son Isaac. What he was giving Abraham there was an opportunity to demonstrate the authenticity of his faith. He tested Israel again and again and again in the wilderness. For example, Exodus 16, he gave manna that came down from heaven and he says, this is a test. Are they going to follow me? Trust me, obey my command. Will they gather only what they need for the day or will they hoard because they can't trust me for tomorrow? In Judges 2, it says that he didn't drive out all the nations from the land of, of Canaan, from the promised land, and Israel had to live there and dwell with some of them. In that passage, it's interesting because that's both a judgment and a test. It says, in order to test Israel by them, by these people, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. By God's design, tests provide an opportunity to endure in faith to grow and mature in your, Christian, in your Christian walk. Yet God, I mean, we know that God controls all things. God knew that Abraham would pass his test. He knew that Israel would fail theirs. So if the trial ultimately leads to this temptation, this is the question of this passage. Can we lay the charge at God's feet? God has tempted me to sin. James will give an answer, and his resounding answer is no. No. He does, what he does in this passage is he deals a death blow to our pride, because pride is the thing that's going to cause you to fail when you are facing temptation. There's two approaches, two sinful approaches to um, uh, sin and temptation that James is going to help us avoid in this first section. His first prideful response is to blame God. And what does James say to this response? In verse 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So James exonerates God first by highlighting something about the nature of God himself. 
While he tests in order to strengthen faith and refine faith, he never seeks to induce sin or to destroy faith. James's point in this passage is that God is not susceptible to any desire for evil. So he cannot therefore desire that evil be in man. He is holy and good and there's no place for ulterior motives in the way that he deals with us. There's no impulse in him to seeking the hurt of his children. He tests faith as the means of producing steadfastness. And when we sin, James says the blame lies not with him, but in us. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. James is using here a fishing metaphor. It's like we're fish with a specially crafted and preferred bait that is, is relevant specifically to us. Those of you who like to fish, you, maybe you have a, a tackle box, and if you were to open that, that box of, of lures and tackle and show us, we'd see all kinds of different lures in there, some that you've maybe crafted with special feathers and other ones that are green or blue or, or different shapes and colors. Now you hold the lure in your hand and you see that cold, big metal um, uh, hook coming out the end of it and you think to yourself, what fish would be dumb enough to bite into this metal hook, right? But see that thing in the water, moving in the water, the way that it wiggles and jiggles and, and catches the light in just the right way. You send that lure, uh, that, that lure past the right fish and he's duped. He can't resist. He takes a bite. At least I think that's the point. I don't know much about fishing. James says, look, the lure is inside you. The problem is with you. The lure is your own desire. It's not circumstances that create temptation. It's not God leading you into temptation. It's your own desire. Alec Matias says in his commentary, were there no Satan, there would still be wickedness where every prospect pleasing human nature would still be vile. The enemy is not only within the camp, within the heart, the enemy is the heart itself. The problem is your heart. And you need to receive that and accept it. The only way you'll be able to put to death your pride and stop shifting the blame, the only way you'll be able to own your sin and own the truth, as the prophet Jeremiah said, Jeremiah 17 verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Every time you say something that's evil, every time you lie or gossip, Every time you do something that you shouldn't do, every outburst of anger or irritation or impatience, every moment of lust or greed in your life, they all reveal not just the truth that you are a, a victim living in a fallen world, but they reveal the truth that there is something amiss in your heart. And if you want to have hope in your battle against temptation, you have to start with this truth and not be blind to the reality of what lurks inside of you don't be so surprised at what you are capable of. Don't be like the young priest who was serving in confessional for the first time. And there was an older priest sitting next to him to oversee his first day. At the end of the day, the older priest took him aside and said to him this. He said, my boy, when a person finishes with confession, you've got to learn to say something other than wow. 
right? For all the mess that we make, it's astonishing that we are still able to be so sinfully predisposed to shift the blame to someone else. James now will press this metaphor um, home a little bit more by changing it, or changes the metaphor to a metaphor of childbirth. And he's here reiterating the fact that this is an is a internal affair. But each person, he says, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. So desire is the mother of sin. We don't need external help. We make it all up quite fine on our own. And the truth is this. It's amazing at the back end of that, that temptation, after we've sinned, that we are able to point our finger at God. When in succumbing to temptation, what we are doing is forgetting that he exists and pushing him aside. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his work, Temptation, says this. He said, with irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. It makes no difference whether it is sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or, or greed for money. Joy in God is extinguished in us, and we seek all our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and will of man in deepest darkness." That is how we succumb to temptation, even as Christians. It's this moment of deep darkness. It's true, isn't it? We forget who we are. We forget what sin is. We forget who God is, and we discount His Word. It's the only way that sin, which we know to be ugly in the light, would become acceptable or justifiable, even admirable to us. So what we need to do is come to Him in repentance for help. In verse 15, James says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James is wanting us not to be under any illusions as to the seriousness of every temptation that we face. Not to take our sinful desire lightly. Sin is never isolated from a spiraling pathway that ends in death. This analogy is richer. He's using the language of childbirth. And there are actually two births, two generations here. The first is desire that gives birth to sin. And the second, he shows, is sin giving birth to death. And that second birth is chilling. This imagery of pregnancy emphasizes progression and an inevitability. Just like an embryo grows and grows inevitably towards maturity uh, and results in new life, so sin grows and it matures if, if it is left unchecked in your life. But the horror here is that the sin doesn't give birth to life, but to death. We give in to temptation because sin promises us something. It promises life, but it only produces death. What, we, what seems so innocent to us contains death. What seems desirable contains death. 
And death comes to marriages and families and friendships and churches before you know it. And ultimately, James is warning here as well that death is the end result of a lifestyle of refusing to repent and turn to God. So sin, I mean, so Christians take seriously their sin, seriously enough to do the continual hard work of repentance. To be a Christian is to live a lifestyle of repentance. I said there were two prideful approaches that James wants to help us avoid. And the second, I believe, is this, inherent in this verse here. We don't just lie down. We don't refuse to fight. We don't just accept our fate. We don't get caught up in self-pity that leads to a cycle of hopelessness. That's how sin grows in your life. When we fail, when we fail to resist temptation and we sin again and sin is birthed, we repent. We bring it to the cross. We preach again the gospel to our souls. As the psalmist said, we forget not all his benefits who forgives all our iniquities. We don't accept it. We don't shift the blame. We don't sweep it under a rug or justify it. We run to Christ and are honest about him, about it. And we choose humility over pride. And this is how we can put to death our sin. We counter this cycle, this life leading to death picture here, this desire birthing sin, sin birthing death. We counter that by clinging to the reverse process, a death that leads to life. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the, fle- live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who, get, who loved me and gave himself for me. It's at the cross where we come and know again his forgiveness and his love and forgiveness and love that revives in us again a healthy anger towards our sin. It births in us a hope. It restores in us a taste for what is really good and what is true and what leads to life. Are you today perhaps tired of a pattern of sin that you have in your life? Something you can't seem to defeat a temptation that keeps coming back again and again and again. Don't downplay it. Don't downplay the problem you have in your heart. Acknowledge it, but don't stop there. Go to the cross where Jesus says, there is therefore now no condemnation for for those who are in Christ. Lift your eyes to him and hope again in him. And leads us to number two in verses 16 to 18. We see the truth about God that calls us, that calls for hope. James has pointed to the truth that the cycle of sin and death that people find themselves in, it, it stems from a wrong belief. They be, believe wrongly about themselves, that they're not to blame, that there's someone else to blame. And they believe wrongly about sin, that it is toothless or small. But most importantly, implicit in all of this is that they are believing wrongly about God, that he is not good, that he isn't better, more beautiful, more rewarding than sin, that he can't be trusted completely in the middle of trial. It is this, this wrong belief about God that causes all our trouble in temptation. It is hopelessness that compounds the problem of temptation and sin. I know this is how it works in me. My irritation with my kids, 
the problems I have with anger or about negativity about life, they are always worse when hope is dim and hopelessness flows from a niggling doubt about the goodness of God. Does he really care about me? Has he really even called me? Has he really given me what I need in order to do what he expects of me? Or am I just the the butt end of a cruel joke? Is he really for me? Or am I going it all alone? That is no way to live the Christian life. There's no joy in that. And there's no fight in that. What you and I need when temptation comes is we need to know the truth about who God is. It's why James says in verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. A sense in that word beloved more than just James's affection, but a statement about our status in Christ, that we are of the beloved. So what is the answer to this truth that our hearts are springs of death-bearing wishes? The answer to that truth That sinful desire is a greater love, the need for a greater love. His love for us that is greater than our sin, that produces in us a love for him that is greater than our evil desires. So allow James now to lift your eyes to the hope that you have in a loving father in verses 16 to 18. He says this, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He's saying never, never will the Father tempt his children with evil because he is always good. He is the giver of perfect gifts, what you need. He calls him the Father of light. It's the counterpart to this truth he had mentioned in verses 14 that he cannot be tempted with evil and neither does he tempt anyone with evil. He is holy, pure, and luminous in his goodness. James is tracing the goodness of God here all the way back to creation, I believe. The lights he's referring to are the glorious bodies of light that he made at creation, the sun and the moon and the stars. And in creating those things, he called that work good. James wants us to see the sustaining goodness of God. By his word, he made them all, more than we could ever count. And yet he knows every one of them by name. He frames the laws that keep them on their courses. He orders them all. He is over them all. Surely this God of light and goodness and unmatched power knows what you need in your temptation and in your trial. Our hearts may be unreliable guides, but God is able to give us what we need. And so there is hope. Verse 17b, with him there is no variation, James says, no variation or shadow due to change. I believe James is continuing this description of God's transcendence, the Father's transcendence over creation. So speaking from a human perspective, how do we relate to these heavenly lights that he speaks of? With our feet planted here on earth, all we know is continual change. We see constant change. Constant movement in the heavenly bodies. The sun rises, right? And it, it, it takes its journey uh, through the sky. And so our shadow changes with it. And then the sun sets and our shadow fades into nothing. And day and night, night and day, there's perpetual change from our perspective. Darker and brighter, depending on whether it's summer or winter, the waxing and the waning of the moon. 
James is saying, not so with God. He does not change like shifting shadows. One commentator says it like this, God's goodness is always at high noon. We call this the doctrine of his immutability, his unchanging character and nature and heart. Did you know that the doctrine of immutability is central to your fight against sin? It is the comfort that we need as we walk life's paths because while we change from moment to moment, the truth is that God never changes. His desire is unchanging. His heart for you is constant. He will always be, if you are his child, he will always be a good shepherd. He will lead you beside still waters, the psalmist says, lead you in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The problem here is that you are not alone in your temptations. You are not an orphan, John would put it that way. You have the Spirit of God within you as a child of God. And he gives perfect gifts, what you need. In verse 18, finally, he, James, illustrates the, 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 the gift that he's talking about here. What it means that God is the Father who gives perfect gifts. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the, the counter process to that process he mentioned. Desire, giving birth to sin, giving birth to death. There's a different kind of birth that he's speaking of here. A rebirth that scripture speaks of throughout. The prophet Ezekiel, for example, speaks of, he has the language of a new heart in Ezekiel 36 a heart of flesh that replaces a heart of stone so that our hearts now are sensitive to God and responsive to his word. The prophet Jeremiah agrees in Jeremiah 31, on this heart, God's law is written. And in this way, we belong to him and he belongs to us and his word becomes precious to us. Jesus spoke to Nicodemus in John chapter three about this, this rebirth. So he said, earthly life begins through our parents and with that comes our current fallenness and hopelessness. But through the spirit, apart from human agency, we're reborn to new life, a new relationship with God that comes with new desires to follow, obey, and love him. Paul uses the language of new creation. And I believe that matches what James is speaking of here when he says we are kind of first fruits of God's creatures. The rebirth that takes place in us is a foretaste, a down payment of a redemptive plan that will eventually, in God's plan, encompass all creation. So this is my hope. This is your hope in temptation. What God is doing, what he is committed to do and to accomplish in his children. James says, of his own will. Here he's agreeing with the rest of Scripture that salvation from beginning to end belongs to the Lord. And it's His work. It's not something that you earn or something you merit or deserve. It's given as a gift. So as a Christian, you may be sitting in your chair and you know the pull of temptation on your heart. You know that when it comes, it comes strong. And the promise here is that ultimately the, the sinful desires of your heart, they cannot overpower the will of God for you. They cannot reverse the process that he started, the process that he promises he will finish. And it's in this knowledge and this truth that we fight. 
No matter how many times you have to get up again, you get up again knowing that heaven's will is in your corner. As the father of light, he spoke a good creation into being. And through here, his word of truth, James says, he speaks life into us. That is true of you if you are a new, if you are a believer. You need to understand this. Becoming a Christian is not just a a moral or psychological decision that you make. It's a miracle of grace that he performs through his word, through the gospel when you hear it, through the spirit who regenerates your heart, who opens your eyes to see the beauty of Christ. Is this you? As Peter says in 1 Peter 1.23, have you been born again through the living and abiding word of God? Verse 25, the good news that was preached to you. Do you know Ephesians 1.13-14, this word of truth is the, is the gospel of your salvation by which you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, the guarantee of your inheritance until you acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. James wants you to have hope in your temptations. He up, he's holding up the, the goodness of God as a threefold hope. He is the father of lights, meaning he's the sustainer of creation, and he's the sustainer of your life. He's the unchanging one who's transcendent over creation, standing over it and who is untouched by the chaos of your life. He's the giver of redemptive life, the one at work in you so that you can be, as Paul says, more than a conqueror in Christ. This new birth, it's the weapon by which your desires are being changed and transformed in Christ. So as we close here, I want to bring it back in a circle to the original question here. It's not how strong are you? That's not the main question here. The main question is a matter of love. Do you love him? Yes, you fight desires as a part of your sinful nature. But there are other desires in your heart, warring desires, overcoming desires, a desire to love and obey him. James 1.12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So the road to the crown is a road of love. When you are flawed again by temptation, the endurance producing power in your life is love. And when you are anticipating temptation to come because it's going to come, it will come again. The hope inducing power right now for you is love. We cry out today. We cry out that Christ would be more to us than our sin. That the promise of life in him would be more than the trinkets of this world and what sin offers, that our desire would be for him. I mentioned earlier that example of the manna that came down from heaven as a test for Israel. Would they trust God's faithfulness and his provision? And like they did again and again in the wilderness, they failed to believe his goodness. It's why they kept grumbling. They kept complaining, and we see the ugliness of their complaint. Why did you lead us here to die in the wilderness? It's a heart that doesn't trust. Throughout this period, there's somebody else who did stand the test. Moses. Moses is a contrast to Israel. Unlike unlike Israel, Moses had a pervading belief in all he did about the goodness and the preciousness of God. There's this interesting story in, in Numbers chapter 10. 
Moses is trying to convince his brother-in-law, Hobab, to join Israel. He knew that Hobab was good at, at, at you know, scouting where was a good place to set up camp. And he wanted the, his expertise with them. And, and this is his sales pitch. He says to him, if you come with, we'll, we will share whatever good God brings our way. He's basically saying, God has promised to be good to Israel. Why would you want to miss out on that? Earlier, there had been a time where God had told Moses, he said, Moses, you go into the land. You lead Israel into the land. I'm going to send an angel with you. Angel's going to make sure that you win your battles. And everything in that land, the land flowing with milk and honey, will be yours only. I'm not going with you because if I go with you, I'm going to kill Israel on the way there. They are a stubborn, a stiff-necked people. It was a test for Moses. And Moses said, you, along these lines, if you don't go with me, I don't want to move another step. I'd rather die here in the wilderness than go without you. All the other desires that we might possibly have satisfied in the land of Canaan are worthless without you. Moses was in it for the crown of life because his heart was shaped by a love for God. How is your heart today? Let's pray. Father, we come before you with hearts very often divided. And we have these moments of insanity. We forget your splendor, forget your value. We forget your beauty and your holiness and the ugliness of sin, and we give in to temptation. Father, we need your forgiveness. We need your mercy. And it's astonishing to us, Lord, that even though we do that again and again and again, still you love us. Still you are a good shepherd. Still you pick us up on your shoulders, shoulders and you leave us back and lead us back into your fold. Father, we pray that you would make us strong in temptation. And I do want to echo Andrew's prayer from earlier, Lord, over the marriages, the families, the relationships in our congregation, Lord. Would you protect us from the things, the the sins that lead us down a pathway of death? Would you protect us from lust and greed and pride? Lord, would you make us stronger and bring us closer to your heart, we pray. We ask in your holy name.